is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. A Royal Marine convicted of murdering a Taliban fighter has been publicly named. What does the Chancellor's autumn statement mean for the military? We can this year reduce the military special reserve by a further £900 million while still funding all operational costs. Will French intervention in the Central African Republic make a difference? And when will we see a female Chief of Defence staff? The High Court in London has ruled that a Royal Marine who was convicted last month for murdering an injured Afghan insurgent can be named publicly. He is Sergeant Alexander Wayne Blackman of 4-2 Commando. He's due to be sentenced tomorrow. His identity had been kept secret until now. Well, I'm joined by documentary maker and journalist Chris Terrell who filmed with the Royal Marines on the front line in the area where the killing took place and our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Chris Terrell, first of all, what do you make of today's decision to release his name? Well, I was expecting it, I have to say. I'm disappointed because I think it's the wrong decision um, for one reason, one reason alone, that's the safety of both the Marines involved and particularly their families. I understand the wider implications of the freedom of information and the open justice and so on, but I think we have to think in the immediate term about the safety of human beings, particularly in the light of what's... That happens in our streets with Lee Rigby. The war, the war in Afghanistan is not restrained uh, to, to the killing fields of Helmand. It's in our streets. Christopher, we talked about the rise of extremism in the UK many times on this programme. Reprisals, surely a real concern? I think they're an absolute concern. Um, they're in such a concern that there are things in, in place to try and protect those people who might be vulnerable, but you cannot protect them all the time and you need one... Uh, tragedy uh, to show the, how weakness is, weak it is. But there is a huge argument, and there's an argument at public level, and the public doesn't always support, surprisingly, uh, this sort of thing, this sort of secrecy as far as the military is concerned. If I was accused of murder, under different circumstances, admittedly, I would be named publicly when I went into the dock. Now, it is totally different, I understand that, but from the public's point of view, uh, it is not different. So do you think the decision is the right decision then? Uh, it's very much a personal view that if you understand the dangers and you put into position all the protection for the other people, then it's, I think it's very difficult to, once the person has been found guilty perhaps, is the person has to be named. After all, the people that actually you may fear they know who the, the name is. They know that name. They've known that name for some time. And that's something else to consider. Chris Tyrrell, um, you could argue that the greater good is served by naming this man because it rules out others who, as a result of perhaps wagging tongues, might have been under suspicion. And it also sends out a clear message. You simply can't get away with murder, even in a war zone. Yes, I think that's right. And, and Christopher, you know, I completely agree with, with what Christopher's saying. It is a personal judgment. Uh, and we do have to recognise that we must send out the right message <coughs> to to the nation's potential enemies and real enemies. Uh, and I know that General Sinek Horton has said, you know, murder is murder, and um, this this mustn't erode the moral ascendance ascendancy over our enemies. But 
the, the point is, and and yes, the, the, we I've known for some time the name of this of, of the marine, uh, Marine A, as he's being called, and um, and and to be honest, uh, a, a lot of the press have known as well, but they've kept it to themselves because they had to. But that was that was going to leak out, um, you know. It, it was bound to leak out eventually. Uh, but but nonetheless, now there is a clear statement that this is this man has done wrong. He's a murderer. Murder is murder, and I think that's mistaken because the 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 circumstances of what happened, uh, as horrendous as it was, and nobody can condone it. But one has to see it in the context of the brutalising effect of frontline warfare. Yeah, and the the Marine will be sentenced tomorrow. Do you think yes. that those conditions, which I know you've talked about before, that you've described mm. as hell on earth, and mm. his hitherto exemplary mi- military career, because he's done three tours in Iraq, two in Afghanistan, one in Northern Ireland, Ireland considers a safe pair of hands. Yeah. Um, do you think that should be taken into consideration when he's uh, sentenced? Oh, yes. You know, there's no doubt about it. I'm a soldier, I'm an anthropologist, really, and, uh, but, I, but that means that I, I learn to see the world through other people's eyes as best I can and having been there at the time uh, it was a hell on earth and and the the, the war the front line the carnage around you and the fear uh, 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 and and just the, the the general ambience of the place that we were in it, it ultimately does inevitably disturb your own moral compass and that's what's happened here the, you know he is not a wanton assassin. He's not an executioner. He's a Royal Marine commander, for goodness sake. He's one of the most highly trained soldiers in the world. He's an elite trooper. Um, But I think under these circumstances, with all that had gone on on his tour and many tours leading up to that, including Iraq, he was a a soldier ultimately with an enormous amount of responsibility on his shoulders. Um, and I think he just lost the plot, and that that happens. And with, we have to take into account that that it does happen. Chris Billy, some public reaction during the during the hearing was that when uh, this incident took place, there was discussion at the point that this was wrong to do it, and therefore that, if you like, uh, set aside the possibility in the heat of battle, etc. In theory. The second thing is that talking to a couple of people, and I sometimes think I think the chief, the general staff, and chief, the defence staff are in this mood as well. You have to decide the, if you call it the moral jurisprudence of 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 any army that we have, you have to decide it at a distance from the actual occasion, the actual battle. <clears throat> Otherwise, you'll be making up the law as you go along, according to the heat of that battle. Of course, Chris Terrell, we know about that conversation because it was all captured on headcam footage. Yeah. And as a man who's filmed combat at close quarters, do you think this kind of documentation is a game-changer in the way which soldiers will behave in war zones in the future? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, let's not pretend you know, that this hasn't happened before in other wars, in the same war. This, this, it's the nature of warfare, I'm afraid. It's a brutal, horrendous, hideous affair. Uh, and um, it's a kid, in a, especially in a kill or be killed situation. But now, with people like me there with a the camera, um, let alone these 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 uh, helmet cameras, which does affect the way. Actually, it affects the way the boys operate. Did you ma- notice when you were filming, Chris, the way yeah. that people reacted when you had the camera on or off? Well, it, it didn't so matter. I, I, I like to think I work on my own. I don't use a crew. It's just me. I embed uh, and I, I try to become as much one of the one of the the lads as I can, so that I, I'm not I'm not a sort of virus in, invading invading their their particular world. Um, 
and and th- that's a, there's a mutual trust I hope that I, that I managed to develop. But I think the um, and then they get used to me and my camera. Um, but but I think the head cams are a, r- a real issue, a real problem. Partly, you think they're a bad thing, then? Do you? I do actually, because I think in in one in this instance, obviously, it's led to this situation, which we have to deal with. We can't we can't we can't turn a blind eye to it. Or not that I'm suggesting we should, but nonetheless, there it is, um, in in glorious technicolor, so to speak. But. You know, I have seen situations where the lads, uh, they're sporting their cameras and sometimes get a little bit more uh, interest in what they're filming than what they're actually meant to be doing. And I think that that in itself is a game changer. All right, Chris Terrell, thank you very much for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come, we hear the latest from the crisis in the Central African Republic. And when will a woman get the top job in the military? PFDS Sit Rep. The Secretary-General of NATO has warned that international funding for Afghanistan's security forces could stop unless President Hamid Karzai signs a new security agreement. Anjas Fo Rasmussen says that without the agreement, NATO would have to withdraw its entire operation in Afghanistan by the end of next year. Meanwhile, the most senior British officer serving in Afghanistan says the Afghan National Security Forces will be fully capable of controlling their country's security when combat operations end in the country next year. Lieutenant General John Lorimer, the Deputy Commander of ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, pointed to the progress the ANSF had already made since taking the lead for security control this June. Our reporter Ali Gibson began by asking him what had been achieved in 2013. Well, 2013 has been a big year. On the 18th of June this year, the Afghans uh, officially took the lead for security. And since then, we've been in support. And what's been uh, really uh, great to see is that the Afghans have uh, uh, taken the fight to the enemy and they've proven themselves to be a thoroughly resilient, uh, capable and competent organisation. We've got a year left now until British combat troops leave Afghanistan, along with all of their kit and equipment. How is that drawdown process going and would you say that we're on track? Well, transition, first of all, is a, a real sign of success. Uh, redeployment, drawdown is, is going well, it's on track. And uh, next year is going to be busy finishing that all off. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, we're on track. With the Afghan National Security Forces now in the lead, they're suffering even more of their own casualties and injuries. Would you say that we've left them to it a little bit too early? No commander likes to take casualties and the Afghan commanders uh, are exactly like that. They don't like taking casualties and that's why they're putting so much work into, uh, into for first aid, into medical training, into IED awareness and counter-IED and also trying to improve uh, low-level leadership because a lot of this is about uh, professionalising the force. That's one of the best ways to reduce casualties. What would you say then that the ANSF still needs to work on before we leave Afghanistan? At the Sahai levels, within the ministries, they would need to work on things like programming and planning and budgeting. But at the tactical level, it's things like uh, command and control, leadership, sustainment and combined arms integration. That's working together uh, as an effective force. And we're going to be doing that next year with all our advisors, working with them to, to again, to professionalise them. Do you think then that within that year they will kind of be OK for combat operation here to, to formally end? Do you think they'll be in a good position? Well, I think by the uh, the end of uh, 2014, by the end of next year, uh, the Afghan National Security Forces will be able to effect full security transition. They will be responsible for security across the country. 
There is a concern that as smaller British bases close across Helmand, that Camp Bastion itself will become more of a focus for insurgents. How do you balance the need for the drawdown of troop numbers whilst ensuring that those who are still here are kept safe? Well, force protection is clearly one of our priorities, absolute key priority. And uh, we continue to review uh, the measures uh, that are in place you know, all the time. Uh, and, of course, you know, during the drawdown, we will review which uh, equipment uh, is sent back and which kit we need to uh, maintain right through to the end. Let's now talk about Karga, the Afghan National Army Officers Academy uh, based here in Kabul. That's going to be the UK's only sort of commitment to Afghanistan post the end of combat operations in 2014. What do you hope that is going to sort of achieve for the ANA? It's not going to be the only one. It's going to be the main one. No, what, what better legacy do you think there could be than uh, us helping train the future leaders of the Afghan National Army. I mean, a fantastic legacy. And working closely with uh, mentors from uh, Australia, New Zealand, Norway and Denmark, and together we hope to provide a first-class facility where the young, young leaders, the future leaders of the Afghan National Army can be trained. Finally, General, when we look back at Op Herrick in years to come, how do you think history is going to judge this campaign? I think it's a little early to, to reflect on the campaign, but I think what these last 12 years have shown us uh, and demonstrated so much is how lucky we are, we are with the soldiers, sailors and airmen that we have in our armed forces. I mean, this campaign, they've displayed all those key military attributes and personal characteristics that are so important in the military. Uh, and that's uh, fitness, uh, mental robustness, courage, determination, will to win humility, forbearance, patience, and a lot of a sense of humour as well. So I think that's one of the things that I, I take forward from this campaign, is how lucky we are with our soldiers, sailors and um That was Lieutenant General John Lorimer, Deputy Commander of ISAF, talking to Ali Gibson. Christopher, the General there sounding very positive, but could it be the case that NATO could stop funding the security force if President Karzai refuses to sign that agreement? Um, they can't fund unless he does but I don't think it'll come to that. I think he will, he will sign. Uh, the Americans would like him to sign before Christmas New Year to get it wrapped up in a way because the conditions or, or the, the details of it and the conditions and, and the restrictions are not going to change. The curious thing is, is Karzai himself because the, um, his supporters, his advisors, people on his side also want him to sign so it. So why, why is he really it, dragging his well, heels about this? <laughs> Um, and you Karzai, say he is actually going to sign then? I think he will sign. I think, it's, I think it could be as simple as this. Karzai likes playing the Americans off. That's the first thing. <laughs> it's also, he, uh, he also has this personal thing. If he signs it, job done. So what else is there to do? for him, for his rest of the time as... So a bit of a, a, le a legacy moment for him, do you think? It is a legacy moment because when he signs that, he is cleaning up the war. He is saying to the people, I am now going, I am leaving with you uh, this terrible responsibility about the future of Afghanistan, but nobody but nobody else would be able to persuade the Americans to come out with top dollar on this, because we're talking billions of people. The other side of it, uh, he knows very well that the Americans actually don't want to leave Afghanistan. 
the Americans want to stay in Afghanistan for the foreseeable future, not just a couple of years to get their security straight, because this is the center of their counter-intelligence, uh, counter-insurgency uh, and counter-terrorism uh, conflict. And I think the British are watching this because it may be that there'll be a bit more than you know, Sandhurst in the sand for them to be doing as well. Let's talk money now, because the Chancellor's made his autumn statement. George Osborne said the winding down of the operation in Afghanistan has allowed him to reduce the military special reserve by a further £900 million, while still funding all operational costs. Here he is speaking in the Commons earlier. We are also immeasurably proud of the work of Britain's armed forces as they wind down their operations in Afghanistan the budget we spend there is also falling fast, so we can this year reduce the military special reserve by a further £900 million while still funding all operational costs. And to reflect our society's debt of gratitude to our servicemen and women and their families, I want to make a further £100 million of LIBOR fines available to our brilliant military charities. So has the MOD got off lightly? Uh, t- uh, no, it hasn't got off lightly at all. Uh, I tell you, he's putting that LIBOR. You know, this is this is where the banks were fixing the rates, right? Mm. So this is this mm-hmm. is fines for for the bent banks. I mean, this is dirty, <laughs> laundered money that he's actually passing over to the military now. No, um, this goes right. The, the, this special reserve he's talking about. Okay, just just tell us exactly okay, what a, that is. A, a special reserve is rather like the war purse. Mm-hmm. You know, you you have a budget. And you say to the defence minister, here's your budget, go and build some ships, get some guys flying around and running around with their guns, etc. And he says, well, hang on, you just sent me to war. I can't do that out of my normal budget. So they said, we've got a special reserve, so you go off to war and then you can do it. Now, if you come back from war, uh, you don't need that special reserve so much. So he can actually take some money out of it. But there's a bigger thing here. The defence ministry is going to take a big, big hit because read the rest of the of the of the chancellor's speech really go into the rest of the ta- chancellor's speech and he's talking about 15 20 years from now five years from now we'll probably have a 2.7 2.7 he's estimating growth all sounds very good so why is the mod likely to take it take a hit and that was because they are thinking 20 years ahead the sort of money that they're going to be spending is going to have to be cut they will come under all the extra departments, not all departments, will take a hit, and they will have to find because maybe eight percent. Today, the, the, the news was that they were given exceptional flexibility to keep the expected underspend of eight hundred million. Yeah, that what's behind that is there is quite often what happens that the MOD doesn't actually spend all the money. Um, and so at the end of the year, they say, well, look, we haven't spent it all because we've got things going on. We're going to spend it next year. Can we keep the money? And the Chancellor says you can keep it this time. More African and French troops are to be sent to the civil war-torn Central African Republic. They'll be sent there under United Nations authority in an attempt to bring an end to what is being described as a human catastrophe. The BBC's Africa correspondent Andrew Harding is there. Hello, Andrew. Where are you exactly? I'm in a very crowded hospital in the centre of Karam. A lot of wounded civilians and soldiers here. Really pretty grim scenes. People just lying on the floor, collapsed in their own blood, doctors running around trying to patch them up. A lot of fighters from the uh, Seleka movement still in control of the town of Bangui have been bringing their dead and their wounded in. They claim to have repulsed an attack by the largely Christian forces opposed to them. Um, it's a very tense, unpredictable situation. Right now it's a little calmer in town after many hours of heavy fighting. The real concern, though, is that... Uh, 
intercommunal violence is going to kick off uh, even more aggressively than it has been in, in recent weeks. There's a real concern that what was a political power battle here has turned into something much more openly religious, setting Christian and Muslim communities against each other. And what are people there telling you about their need for any international involvement in this? Well, two French um, peacekeeping um, armed personnel carriers just drove past on the road, didn't stop, and there is a sense of great frustration here right now that the French can't do more. They're waiting for this new UN resolution. There are only four to 600 troops in the city at the moment. Once that new resolution is passed, very soon the French are supposed to beef up their forces and secure the capital and hopefully elsewhere. But um, there's a feeling today that they should be doing a lot more. That's certainly what people are telling us. And I think there is huge impatience for both the French and other African forces to come in and try and stabilise the situation before there is more bloodshed. The UN, in particular, warning today of mass killings if there is not stability and tolerance uh, from the uh, from the warring parties here. All right, Andrew Harding, I know you're in a difficult situation where you are. Thank you very much for your time today. That was Andrew Harding, the BBC's Africa correspondent, uh, speaking from the Central African Republic. Um, Christopher, just just give us a bit of a, a beginner's guide, if you like, to what's been happening there. OK, um, back in April, the president got booted out. And the conflict began of the presidential supporters, if you like, trying to get back in or get him back in or whatever. The next thing that happened is that it started to become more than that. It became a civil war, not for, for political reasons, but something which Andrew started to talk about there, and that is that you've got this mix, which you see in other parts of Africa at the moment, as the Muslim versus the Christian or others, and that is becoming the battle at the moment. Now, at the moment also, we're waiting for this, uh, for the French to go in. I mean, we'll get, it, it doesn't matter when they, when they're given the mandate by the UN, it'll take a long time to get at least a thousand French troops in there, uh, and, but it won't settle it. With 1400, which is all they will have at the moment, French troops, they could probably secure the city, the capital but they won't be able to secure the rest of the country. And that's the first important thing. The second thing is that we rely also, and they rely in support from the African Union soldiers. They are not properly trained. They are not capable of actually securing the country, especially when this becomes a communal war rather than simply a peacekeeping operation. Is it likely that Britain's going to get involved in this? And what is the importance that this country is stabilised? Uh, well, it's, it's part of the whole uh, uh, destabilisation of that part of Africa. You can spread out. How many times have we been talking about, oh, you know, the war that's going on in southern Sudan, then the war uh, that's spilling over in the Democratic Republic of, uh, uh, of the Congo, then the Central Asian uh, African Republic. Mali, uh, we, were, we were talking about at the beginning of the year. And in there is not simply... If you can imagine that you've got a great continent which is imploding. And the consequences commercially, politically, uh, and for the whole world is actually massively important, not only for the commodities, etc., and the politics of it, but the enormous sense of tragedy for the millions of people. The scar of Rwanda is on this country at the moment. Christopher, stay with us. This is BFBS. Sit, Rep.
The highest-ranking female ever to serve in Britain's armed forces has said there's no reason why a woman couldn't become the Chief of Defence Staff. Air Vice Marshal Elaine West is the RAF's first two-star officer and gave her first broadcast interview yesterday. She said that opportunities for women in the military have never been better. Uh, Christopher, do you think that's the case, or is the MOD like the, the Church of England where women can become priests but not bishops? Well, I tell you, it, it, it is one of those things, isn't it? I mean, every time you, you, you turn on a programme nowadays, you've got somebody on going on about the glass ceiling and uh, and women in in almost every part of industry including the services uh ministry of defense i think two back the head of the ministry of defense was a woman out of the nine assistant undersecretaries five women so there's that part of it but when you get to the military it's because the number of women in the military and and not as great you haven't got one-to-one for example but There is no glass ceiling, I don't believe, in the military at all. What there is, of course, is... you really say that, though, when you look at the figures in terms of the the women that actually get to the top or don't get to the top? Um, A lot do. A lot get into very, very senior positions. I mean, you look at the the Navy. You haven't got a first sea lord. You haven't got a chief of the general staff. You haven't got a a whatever. But it's also true. I mean, if you were in in the infantry, for example, or you are in the army, generally... You'd look around and you'd say to yourself, hang on, why is it always the Royal Green Jackets that become in the senior vice chief's uh, jobs? Why are the submariners always becoming the uh, the, the, the the first sea lords, etc.? So you've got that, not well, just... At, just not just, just a, that, you mentioned the first sea lord. If it was a lady, would it be a first sea lady? A woman, would it be a first sea lady? Or what, what would you call her? Well, I'll tell you, I'm not sure. I think I'd still call him first sea lord. But let me tell you something. <laughs> uh, Prince Philip has just uh, retired as the the master of Trinity House. Um, and uh, he's been succeeded by the Princess Royal, Princess Anne. And she, she was asked rather delicately, tell me, are we to call you the mistress of, uh, of Trinity House? And she said, no, there are far too many mistresses in the city. I shall remain master. <laughs> on that point, I think we shall move on. Uh, any other business to look forward to next week? I mean, I know you were mentioning something about this international conference going on in Bahrain. Yeah. Uh, what's it about exactly? Very important. You know, what's going to happen in Bahrain? What's going to happen in the Gulf? What do we What do we do about international... How do we control international uh, situations? And the Secretary General of NATO is going down to this meeting. Very important to talk to the people in Bahrain. And what's their concern specifically? Uh, because what's going on at the moment, we see illustrations of, of, of the bombings, the assassinations in Lebanon between Shia and, and Sunni, and the Bahrainis and the Saudis believe that that could spread, to, uh, could spread to the Gulf states. And that is the important, because if it spreads to the Gulf states, then you get the, the, the oil turned off, you get the biggest change in in Middle East politics that anybody has seen, not just for 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 years, but ever, ever seen. The other thing which I think is important to watch out for next week, um, and uh, Makasewe's Mandela, who is the daughter of Nelson Mandela, she is, I think, now preparing the family. She says uh, Nelson Mandela is, is fighting for his life, and he's a great fighter, but she thinks that death is catching up on him, and that will be the biggest event, biggest event we have seen internationally in Africa. I'm sure there'll be a lot of talk on this programme about that, um, should, should that happen. Um, just meant, tell us a little bit about this assassination of a Hezbollah commander and why we should be worried about that. Hassani Lachis in, 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 in uh, Beirut was uh, assassinated um, less than 24 hours ago. He was a Hezbollah. Uh, senior commander in Hezbollah. Hezbollah is Shia. 
Uh, it's a battle between the Sunnis again and the Shias, and the Hezbollah supports the Iranians, and the Iranians support the Assad, and therefore it's an extension of that Syrian war into the Lebanon. Uh, what everybody is, is, is concerned, that this is beginning of something much, much bigger, which I'm saying earlier, it'll start spreading down to the Gulf, and then the whole Middle East goes on fire. Uh, Chris, just to go back to women in positions of power, uh, across the pond, the news that a lady, a woman called Christine Fox, about to become the most senior woman ever at the Pentagon. What can you tell us about this woman? Well, Christine Fox was said to have been the, the model for, um, uh, in Top Gun. You know, uh, Kelly the Ma film, <laughs> the film, uh, the film, which every aspiring pilot ought to watch, um, or, or if you have other ambitions as well. But you remember the, the part that uh, was played by Kelly McGill's the thingy. I've been made to watch it many times. Yeah. Well, the only thing I could say about uh, Christine Fox is that, you know, she was there. She was running it. She's back. She in the, inspired she, this. She inspired it. Although I can't imagine, with great respect, I can't imagine Tom Cruise ever fancying Christine Fox over Kelly McGill's. I, I, but, Honestly, cannot comment on that, Christopher. But there's another side of it. She's not there for long. It'll be a temporary uh, posting until... Sad, sad thing from one of the spokesmen until we get a real deputy minister. Ah, oh, we can't end the programme on this. Christopher, thank you, I think. And thanks to all our guests this week. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. SITREP is back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS.